tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. just chatting with the voice in my head about obscure biblical things. That's what we do at Relevant Radio all day long. We discuss obscure biblical things. Actually, we kind of do. It's fun to get into conversations with folks. But I'm digressing before I've even started, so let's just go to prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's go to the big book on the coffee table. Today is the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter. And as I said in some context or other, why are we celebrating furniture? Well, this isn't just any piece of furniture. In Rome, there is a magnificent Baroque, uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. It's not quite a statue. It's a bronze thing. It's huge. And it's the doctors of the church holding up a throne. It's behind, way behind Bernini's column and sort of in the, in the apse of the Church of St. Peter. And inside that, that bronze throne, there is a chair, which may or may not, all or in part, well, certainly not all, but in part go back to an ancient, ancient chair. It's not sure what the origin of that chair is, but it is thought to have been the teaching chair of St. Peter. Jesus, again, we go with Matthew, the fifth chapter. I'm not going there, but you know what I think about that, that that Jesus went up the mountain with his disciples because he sat down, you know, oh, I guess I'll go there. I always get irritated by these pictures that show Jesus standing up on a mountain addressing the crowds. I don't think that happened. It just isn't a good way to address crowds. You got the Sermon on the Mount and you got the Sermon on the Plain. And it clearly says in Matthew, the fifth chapter, Jesus went up the mountain with his disciples. There you go. And maybe people followed him up the mountain. I don't know. Maybe there were more people than that, but he went up with his disciples and he sat down. This is important because when a rabbi was teaching his disciples, he sat to do it. We Christians stand in a pulpit and we bang on it. At least I do. Um, 
the rabbis, when they when they were serious about something, they sat down. And we read in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus, opening his mouth, he said, he sat down and he opened his mouth and said. He's not going to say it with his mouth closed. That's kind of a, a stylized way of saying that Jesus was about to say something really important. He meant it. So he sat to teach his disciples. So... What is this sitting? Well, we also read that, that uh, Jesus says, uh, and we'll run into this in the gospel in, in, uh, in a bit, that um, yeah, I think next week we run into it, that um, Jesus uh, said, he talked about the chair of Moses, that the Pharisees sat in the chair of Moses. Uh, thus, you should pay attention to them. But that's kind of interesting. They sat in the chair of Moses. What was that about? It was to teach authoritatively. And I have heard, I don't know if it's so, but I have heard, I have was taught that rabbis actually had a chair that was their teaching chair. And it's very interesting that if you go to an ordination, uh, the bishop will, will sit in a rather small uh, chair with a low back, uh, has a back, it's kind of a straight back chair, but it's a low back. And you'll see some of the acolytes bring the chair out and place it in front of the altar. And then the bishop will sit and he will address those about to be ordained. That harkens back to the rabbinical custom of the teaching chair. And that's what we're celebrating, the teaching authority of St. Peter. That that uh, You hear the phrase ex cathedra when, when the Pope says something ex cathedra. He is sitting in the chair of St. Peter. You know, the, 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 the authority of, of the church to teach comes from St. Peter. Uh, Jesus told Peter that he was to confirm or to strengthen the brethren. And, and that's the role of the Pope, to strengthen the faithful, to strengthen the brethren. So let's go to, uh, let's see, do I want to look at the first reading? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I exhort the presbyters among you. I have shared... As a fellow presbyter, I, I've shared um, that idea of the presbyterate, that the word presbyter, which is a Greek word that means elder, comes into English as priest. And both the word presbyter and sacrificer are translated from the Greek and Hebrew texts as priest. But priest really comes from the word for elder. And the, the a priest, a Jewish sacrificing, a Jewish sacrificer, that's the more proper word, was never ordained. He was installed in his ministry, whereas presbyters among the Jews, among the Israelites, were ordained with the laying on of hands. It was not a hereditary position. The sacrificerhood you had to be descended from Aaron. The uh, the the presbyterate, no, you were chosen and ordained. And that's the structure that comes to us from, from Judaism into Christianity, from the religion of Israel, more properly said, I would say. So Peter calls himself in this letter a fellow presbyter. It seems that in the very earliest days of the church, there wasn't a distinction between bishop and presbyter. Uh, the word bishop in Greek is episkopos, which means supervisor. And you might have one supervisor who was the elder. Um, the all, I was ordained a deacon, and then I was ordained a presbyter. A bishop is ordained a deacon, 
and then an elder, a presbyter, and then a supervisor, an episcopos. He never ceases to be a deacon. He never ceases to be an elder. But in addition to these functions, these sacramental functions, comes the duty to be the supervisor of the diocese. And every every bishop is also a priest, is also a deacon. Very interesting that that uh, the tradition is, and I think a lot of bishops still follow it, that you don't simply wear a chasuble, which is the vestment proper to the presbyterate, to the elderhood, to the priesthood. You wear The bishop wears a dalmatic and over that a chasuble because the bishop is the head deacon and the bishop is the head elder in the diocese. So this is why Peter calls himself a, pre, a presbyter, a priest. And I, I think it's important to understand that, that the primary function, as St. Peter is saying here, is to is to shepherd the flock, that that um, somehow we think of it as sort of an international thing and or, or a, uh, a sort of a higher authority. And admittedly, it's a, it's a fuller authority than the presbyter or the diaconate, but it is still a, a pastoral ministry, a presbyteral ministry. It is the ultimate presbyterate, the ultimate diaconate. So the, the bishop is the ultimate servant of the people of his diocese, and he's the ultimate father to the people of his diocese. That's what St. Peter is saying here. Well, let's go to the gospel. Um, when Jesus was in the region of Caesarea Philippi, this is interesting because this is Herod Philip, who was one of the sons of Herod, I believe a son of Herod the Great. I sometimes get confused because there's a few generations of Herods. When you see Herod in the Bible, think of it as a last name instead of a first name. You have Herod the Great and then his sons by five different wives and his grandsons. It gets very confusing. Uh, they were a really dysfunctional family uh, who were always either marrying each other or killing each other. And uh, well, this is Herod Philip. And he built or he he uh, expanded a town in in the northern part of the Holy Land which is very, very significant. It, it is under a huge, huge outcropping of rock. By huge, I mean the size of a hangar for a zeppelin. It's huge. This thing is at least 10 stories tall and, and, and twice as wide as it is tall. And from under it, there's a cave whence came the Jordan River at one point. It's one of the sources of the Jordan. Now, that cave no longer has water coming out of the water. The water exit has moved a little further out. But one of the sources of the Jordan still comes from this great rock. And the cave from which the water came in the time of Christ was considered one of the entrances to the underworld, to the world of, of Sheol, of Hades, of, of, of the dead. And it was a bottomless cave. That's what they believed. And they would throw offerings in it and that sort of thing. Well, uh, <clears throat> it was a place sacred to the nature god Pan, P-A, and that's the guy with the goat hooves and the pipes. He was uh, a rather randy and uh, dangerous uh, nature spirit. Well, Philip, Herod Philip decided to build a city around it or to, I, there's probably a settlement there, but decided to embellish the settlement with glorious temples, 
to honor the god Pan. And to honor... Now, this is a Jewish guy, a guy who would never think of eating pork when he was further south. But he builds this magnificent city and a temple to the genius of the emperor. That's why Caesar was a title for the emperor. That's why it's called Caesarea. It's, it's Caesar Town. It's the Caesar Town of Philip, not to be confused with Caesar Town on the coast, which Herod the Great, his father, had built. And he built a, a, a shrine to the 12 great Roman gods and all of this. This city shone like a wonderful, brilliant marble abstraction picked out with different colors and with gold, and it just shone from a distance. And uh, this is the background of, of, of this text. Jesus is up there, and they're looking at this town, this magnificent Roman shrine to the gods of that place and to the gods of Rome. And um, Jesus says, uh, uh, he asks, who, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In other words, Peter is confessing the divinity of Jesus while looking at all this glitz and beauty and show about the local gods and the Roman gods and the, and the sacred springs that gave birth to the Jordan, yada, yada. And he's saying, yeah, all that's just glitter. That's all just tinsel. But you, a guy in construction, a, a carpenter, a builder, you're God. And, you know, blessed are you. Favored are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You couldn't know this except by the grace of my heavenly Father. So I say to you that you are, remember Jesus was speaking Aramaic, Kepha. You will find people say, well, Peter, that's Petros. And the Greek word for rock is Petra. And Petros means a chip of the rock or a piece of the rock. This is going on in Aramaic. Well, but you're always telling us that the Holy Spirit chose to write the Bible in Greek. Yeah, but further on, we will see that the Holy Spirit uses the Aramaic word. Uh, St. Paul addresses him as Kepha, that, that this was not his name. His name was Simon, son of Jonah. His title was Rock. There you go. So I say to you, you are Rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. They're looking at this vast rock into which the Roman gods and the local gods um, were were built. And that isn't the rock. You're going to be the rock. And he goes on to say, the gates of the netherworld, not the gate. That was one gate. You know where another gate was? There were a couple. I think there was one in Italy. Uh, and there were a few. But one of the gates of the underworld was thought to be right under the Holy of Holies. There is something to this day called the Well of the Souls, and it's really just a flat marble thing in the, in the, in the Dome of the Rock. But we see this reflected in the book of Revelation, that from underneath the altar, the souls of the just cry out to God in the book of Revelation. We see that. So this, the, the, the rock, they called it the foundation stone, was like a cork, in one of the entrances to the underworld. And Jesus is saying, the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And as we know from looking at uh, the Old Testament, that was a hereditary position. Jesus established a, an ongoing institution when he talked about the keys of 
of of the kingdom of heaven. It isn't to let you in and out of heaven. It's the person who's in, who controls access to the royalness of God. You know, he the, where do we where do we access God's royal nature in the sacraments? And the church is the guardian of the sacraments. So, but that's that's complicated for another day. But when Jesus talks about the gates of the underworld, he's not just talking about Caesarea Philippi. He's talking about Jerusalem. This vast religious political complex of the Romans and the vast political religious complex of, of Judea, these, <laughs> these would not withstand the, 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 the power of, of, of St. Peter, the power of the church, and they didn't. They outlast and, and have continued to outlast both. And it always intrigues me how governments dislike Christianity because governments want you to give their allegiance to them, whether you're a government by politicians or by <laughs> newscasters or government by anyone. They want, to give, they want you to give them your undivided loyalty. And the church comes along, Christ comes along, and <laughs> forget undivided loyalty uh, to this very, very limited mortal power that God commands our loyalty above and beyond these very, very finite and limited mortal things. So this isn't just about heaven and hell. It is about heaven and hell, but it's also about this world in which we live. I really believe Jesus was saying, don't worry about the important and powerful people, the great, as I talked about yesterday, don't worry about them. You're going to be greater than the great. And I think that that's an important dimension of this, that, that this this um, power, this authority that God gave Simon Barjona by calling him the rock. You're the true rock, not the foundation stone in Jerusalem and not not the, the rock of Pan up here in Banias. You're the rock. And I often think about, oh, here I'm going long here, but I often think about when Peter came into Rome, you know, Rome got to a position after the so-called fall of Rome, when it was a town of 10, maybe at the most 20,000 people, and it, there were malarial swamps, people got out of Rome for summer because chances are you're going to catch malaria, that the barbarians, my people, had uh, knocked down the the, uh, the aqueducts, and there were swamps all around Rome, which uh, festered with mosquitoes, which, of course, give you malaria. So <laughs> conquerors were happy to conquer Rome in winter, but they got out of there in summer, in spring and summer. Um, that, that Rome was, was nowhere. And Rome was a city of a million people at the time of Christ. And it got down to 10, 20,000 people max. And Rome would have ceased to exist had it not been that Peter, the old fisherman, was buried there. And Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was buried there. People, despite the malaria, despite the dangers of travel, despite the unimportance of the town, kept coming. So when Peter walked into the city of Rome with its golden roofed temples and its beautiful colored marbles and its, its impressive forums and all these things, he's the guy who said, Rome is going to continue to live on because I'm here. You know, that the Roman government collapsed. It moved. It moved to Constantinople. But Rome is still a city that I like to go to. And uh, as I've often said, Jesus may have founded the, Holy Land, the faith in the Holy Land, 
but they move the head offices to Rome real fast because that's where the good restaurants are. I joke, I joke, but it's true that Rome still draws people and it would have ceased to exist had Peter never gone there. I think that's amazing. All right, well, there you go. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with letters. And uh, the phones are open at 888-914-9149. So we're not really celebrating furniture. We're celebrating the authority that that comes in union with Peter. 888-914-9149. This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. I'm a union man and I work only 16 hours a day. A union man only works eight hours a day. I belong to two unions. This is a great song, principally because it's so true. You know, is it five times in in the uh, in the Bible? that uh, we read the verse, do not move an ancestry's boundary stone. Why is that in the Bible five times? I always say if something's in the Bible a few times, five times though, it's important. God wants you to hear it. If you move a boundary stone, you can never get it quite back in the right place. And uh, we move a lot of boundary stones. Thinking, I heard just someone think, say we have to rethink uh, um we have to rethink some questions about morality in the church today. Uh, be careful not to move the ancestors' boundaries. And I remember old father, oh, what is, what was his name? Was his father Kaczynskis? An old Lithuanian priest. Um, when they took out the confessionals, he shook his head and said, pretty soon they'll find out why they put him in in the first place. And Lord knows we have. So I just digress. Don't move an ancestor's boundary stone. Be very careful before you do. All right, just a thought. Well, let's go to letters. I got a letter from Father Michael in California about the breviary. Um, um, the, 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 um, he mentions that he was taught about praying the breviary. What I was taught was that we had to say the morning and evening office. The, the, okay, let me back up. The breviary, the breviarium. It's a short form. That's what that means. And uh, it is a summary of prayers that priests and deacons and uh, nuns and bishops and all those are expected to say every day. And there are reasons, good reasons to not say it. Um, but in general, it should be said every day. And I was taught that we were obliged as priests to say morning and evening prayer under pain of mortal sin. We did not have a good reason not to. A good reason to not to would be illness or travel. or uh, 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 Actually, I think when you say mass with a bishop, that's what I was taught way back when, or a funeral. Um, the, the, those, of course, on the holy days, 
if you go to the evening services on Thursday and Friday and Saturday, you don't, you're not obliged to say evening prayer on those days uh, um, of the Triduum if you participate in those services. So, but in general, morning and evening prayer are serious obligations. However, what Father Mike is talking about is an office of readings. And uh, Father Mike and I are about the same age. Yeah, they, they, all I can say, Father Mike, is that they did, <laughs> they were a little flaky <laughs> about, about these things. Uh, so, um, uh, the, the, I, I, Cardinal Cyrus said he didn't approve of this, so don't tell him. But it's so much easier now to say the breviary with an iPad or a smartphone because uh, you used to have to move all these ribbons around and you didn't know if you were saying the right reading. So uh, I'm not encouraging anyone to cheat, but it makes it much easier. If you're interested in it, well, the breviary, another thing about the breviary is it seems to have started from the prayers of... Uh, um, the morning and evening sacrifice in the temple. Uh, um, that there were psalms that accompanied uh, uh, psalms that accompanied the morning and evening sacrifice. But also in the psalms, Psalm one nineteen, you read seven times a day I praise you. So it expanded to seven different hours. The morning and evening hours were essential, but the other hours are are important. And the office. The word is also called the office, which means your obligation. It's also called the liturgy of the hours because you break up the time of the day with uh, times of prayer. So it's a wonderful practice, and it isn't restricted to priests and deacons and religious. Uh, no, everyone can say it, and, and it's it's a wonderful way to structure prayer. So I would encourage people to, to look into using the breviary, and you don't have to purchase a lot of books. When I was a lad, we had four different books, and one for each liturgical season, and it could get a little complicated. Now it's very simple because of, well, the, the evil web, <laughs> which can be used for good things too. So this is a, a very ancient uh, custom. So, yeah, Father, uh, Father Mike, all I can say about that is that many things in our education and seminary in our age, well, I don't know any other way to put it, were defective. Um, so there you go. Um, uh, so uh, another thing, Father, Father Mike, we're praying for your health. God bless you. All right. Um, Oh, well, there's a prayer about, uh, okay, and this is another question I do want to answer. Why does Peter say you are the Christ, the son of the living God? I remember once a, a professor told us the proper title for Jesus was Jesus the Christ, uh, which means the Messiah, the anointed one. That's all it means. And, um, uh, the same word is Mashiach. And it's, it's just, you could say Christos Jesus. Uh, Jesus, Christos, Jesus the Messiah, or Messiah Jesus. Scripture uses both terms. I, I hope that helps, Father Mike. God bless, and thanks for calling and for listening. Uh, and oh, I wanted to mention too, by the way, that do not forget um, uh, that um, Father Rocky's Lenten lessons are playing. You can go to the website and get them. They're very good. Someone sent in a question: Is it wrong to attend a medium session? Yes, it's seriously morally wrong. Any kind of occult practice is serious sin. Uh, and you should go to confession. If you have attended a seance, used a Ouija board, um, even had your, your tarot cards or cards read, because you see, you're opening the door to the evil one. 
and uh, uh, you need to close that door by the sacrament of confession. If you didn't know it was a mortal sin, then it was not mortally sinful. You had to know uh, about that, but still a door has been opened and it needs to be closed. It's very, very important. Uh, so it is seriously wrong. Why is it wrong? It's the opposite of grace. You know, Eve and Adam wanted to know more than God was pleased to tell them. Hence, they ate the fruit of the tree. It was good for food and for the gaining of knowledge. And when you try to learn more, uh, especially about the future, than God is pleased to tell you, then you are committing, you are reinforcing and committing the original sin. So don't do it. All right. Okay, moving along here. Ah, this is a, a fun one. This is, um, where'd it go? Mm-hmm. Oh, I can't, oh dear. Ah, um, there is uh, in-depth discussion of the typology of God's 12 wells for Moses in the desert. Well, I, I don't know if there's any book about it. I'm sure the fathers of the church have it. You can look up something called the Catena Aurea, the golden chain. You can get it on the web. It's easy. The Catena Aurea, C-A-T-E-N-A, and then A-U-R-E-A, the Catena Aurea. And find it on the web and find out what the fathers of the church had to say about different script, scripture passages. And this actually is the... Um, Elim. It's one of the oases, and we we read about it in Exodus fifteen twenty seven, and in Numbers thirty three nine. And there were seventy palm trees and twelve uh, fountains, and these um, are a typology. These these. I mean, this really is a place. I mean, somebody went and found this oasis that has twelve twelve wells. So the 70 palm trees and the 12 wells, 70, remember there were 70 disciples, which the Eastern Church calls the 70 apostles. Sometimes it's 70 or 72. And the 12, I'm always telling you 12 is a sign of government. And there were 12 wells which reflect the 12, uh, the 12 apostles. And the 12 apostles were told to go out into the world uh, you know, we're, we're being loose with 12 apostles because, of course, Judas. But the 12 apostles were told by Jesus to go and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And through baptism, we enter into this this organization that Jesus founded, the church. So the power to let people in to the church was given to the 12 apostles. So there were 12 fountains of baptism. That's, that's the symbolism of it, I think. And I think it's a fascinating thing that, that, uh, uh, it's a fascinating question. So, um, I think that, that, um, if you want to look it up, uh, Exodus fifteen twenty seven and numbers 33, nine, it's in those two places. So there you go. I think that's, I think it's interesting, but then again, I think lots of things are interesting. All right, let's see. Let me look at the time here. Okay, one more letter before I knock it off here. All right, this is, um, um, why are the Jewish, the Jewish, okay, why are the Jewish not against abortion? Or believe? why do they not believe in life after death? Why do Jewish people not believe anything beyond Moses and those few books of the Bible? Now, this is not true, that Judaism does not have a central authority the way that Catholicism does, or even the way that, that, that Orthodoxy does. The Eastern Orthodox churches, 
their 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 central authority. They have the Patriarch of Constantinople, but their central authority are the first councils of the church. Why don't now there, the Sadducees believe strictly only in the first five books of the Bible? The Karaite Jews believe only in the first five books of the Bible. And most Jews that I've known, even the Orthodox, believe that the first five books of the Bible are infallible, that Moses was taking dictation. You mean even about his own death? Yes, even about his own death. And um, they, they believe as normative, as infallible, only those things that they can find in the first five books of the Bible. But for Orthodox Jews and for uh, conservative Jews, the rest of the books of the Bible are very important. It's called the Tanakh. It's called the Law, the Torah, the the Navim, the the Prophets, and the the Chutavim, the Writings, and those together form an acrostic, the Tanakh. And so they do reference them as inspired books, just not infallible books. I remember talking to Rabbi Lefkowitz and saying, "Well, it says in Isaiah." He says, "Well, that's Isaiah. You know, it isn't Moses." So. Uh, and so some Jewish people would believe that abortion is horribly wrong, and some don't. Uh, Orthodox, I've never met an Orthodox Jew who does not believe in the survival of death and the resurrection. So there isn't a central authority in the way we have one, but on the other hand, uh, there is a great diversity of belief. I remember Rabbi Lefkowitz telling me, Judas is not so much a theology as a practice which I thought was kind of interesting. Christianity should be at least as much a practice, I think, as it is a theology, a practice that flows from our theology. All that said, we're going to go to a break. Tradition, yes. All that said, we're going to go to a break. We will come back with our word of the day. And, um, uh, and oh, the phones are open at 888-914-9149. We shall be back. Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash forester, an Illinois life insurance society not available in all states. Yes, we'll gather at the Because of the twelve springs of Moses, symbols of baptism. That's it's easy to find it. The, the the oasis. I think it was the oasis of Elim in the Old Testament. And um, you know, very interesting. They talk about the we read in in uh, letter of the Hebrews the rock which followed them in the desert, which was Christ. Huh? Yeah. There's an old Talmudic. I think it's in Talmud. Uh, it's an old story that. Uh, that um, they were followed in the desert by a well. There was always a well wherever they went, and it seems to be a variation of that idea that there was a source of water that followed the Israelites in the desert. I have no idea. I wasn't there. All right, let's go to the word of the day. The word of the day is cathedra. Cathedra is a Greek word meaning a straight-back chair. And that's where we get the word cathedral from, because the bishop's teaching chair, his straight-back teaching chair, is kept in the cathedral, the church of the chair. That's Cathedral means the church of the chair. 
So there you go. That that the bishop has a a great um, responsibility to ensure that the teaching of the faith in the diocese is up to snuff. Hence, his teaching chair has a church dedicated to it, the cathedra, the cathedral. I think that's kind of interesting. All right, let's go to to phone calls. Hello, Ghostbusters. Not anymore. I'm retired. Sam, what can I do for you from Stockton, California? Yes, sir. Um, just two things. I'll try to make them quick. Um, my, my mom, uh, when I was uh, young, she always told me that uh, uh, God let uh, the people who passed on come over to kind of visit. Not visit. I don't know if it was a visit or just kind of they're haunting people. They want to see their loved ones. But um, I've also heard people say that They've seen actual people who've passed on, uh, like their ghosts, and you know, as soon as they see them, like they disappear. Do you have any kind of insight on that? Um, well, it's, it's kind of hard to. It's kind of ambiguous. I, yeah, I've heard that too. In fact, as I've actually heard uh, exorcists I know talk about deceased family members who have gone before them, who died in a state of grace, coming to help them out in exorcisms. Uh, it's kind of interesting, mm-hmm. and I'm uh, so, you know, the, the 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 veil between the world to come or the the invisible world and the visible world is much thinner than most people think. The one thing I would caution mm-hmm. uh, people is never go looking for it. If you see some apparition or hear something, fine, don't go looking for it because when you go looking for it or using it, it may not be the spirit you think it is that the devil often masquerades as the spirit of someone we know and love. So, yeah, I suppose it's possible. Um, St. Teresa, the little flower, when she was asked how she intended to spend heaven, she said, I intend to spend heaven by doing good on earth. So those who've gone before us pray for us, and they 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 try to, to, to do good for us. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting that... Uh, they seem to show up to help people in prayer. So that's the best I can do for you, uh, Sam. Does that help a little? Yeah, it helps a lot. Um, yeah, because I was, I was talking to my family. We were talking about that one day because they said actually seen somebody. And uh, I told them, I go, I wonder if they made it, you know, because, I mean, if, if, if they're, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. That's a good sign. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, who knows? Uh-huh. Yeah, you well, just, but true. I think the important thing to think about this is you never go looking for it. Do not go looking for it. No. Because you no, never yeah, know I, what you're going to find. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and uh, honestly, I, I'm, I, I'd be afraid of to see anyone with my loved ones. Uh, I, yes. I, it'd be a shocker to me. Yeah, and it would one be a bit of a shock. Uh, sure. Yeah. And one last thing. Uh, you mentioned uh, a long time ago, uh, before or a while back uh, about police going to church. Uh, before you mentioned that, I, I, I used to think about that when I'd sit in church, you know, that uh, I think it's a good thing, though, um, that they go to, they go to church. Because uh, I know I know yeah. you say we're not supposed to go there to get nothing, but there is, uh, well, or to, uh, I mean, we do. To, to get nothing, but, you know, but you, I know you do, you know, you get a blessing. and uh, Yeah, you do. You, know, so. you should go there to get Christ, and when Christ comes, he'll bring along a lot of good things. So there you go. Amen. All right. Amen. Thanks for calling in, Sam. God bless you. I'm glad you listened. God bless bless you. You're welcome. Let's go to Joel from Madison, Wisconsin. Joel, what can I do for you? Uh, Hi, Father Simon. Uh, My question is regarding uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church. If you have any Mm -hmm. knowledge of their tradition of exorcism, and if you know if there's any, like, anecdotal insight into the Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox authority, you know, having more effect or, or demons being more subject to one or the other. 
Um, I'm kind of just curious into that, if you have any insight. You know, I have to, I have to admit complete ignorance on it. I have never looked into uh, the the um, Greek Orthodox uh, approach to exorcism, though I am quite sure that they have one. I know that they they would have baptismal exorcisms, that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I have to, I have to admit ignorance. I'll try and look it up and see if I can get get any information mm-hmm. on that. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting, kind of interesting. Wish I could answer your question, but I have to honestly admit that I can't. So I only no, know no, about that's... the Roman Catholic approach. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, so. it's kind of a, an insightful question and maybe a field that you're not expected to be an expert in, but I, I thought I'd give it a shot. So. <laughs> well, what do you mean? I'm an expert in everything. Yeah, right. I suppose. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not at all. I'm not in any way. So, uh, yes, I, that's the joke of it. The Reverend Know-It-All. I wish it was true. All right, Joel, I'm on it. You listen, I'll try and look that up, and maybe tomorrow I can refer to it. Oh, there's the salt shaker. God bless you, Joel. Let's go to Kathleen from, uh, uh, um, from let me look you. Oh, Vista, California. What can I do for you, Kathleen? The gospel today with the loosing and binding of sin, um, with all of yeah. the confusion uh, lately on, on what's sinful or not, and uh, if if I were living in a, in a state of sin because of a sexual relationship, and the priest that I'm going to confess to very much knows that, I don't confess that, but I confess other sins and receive absolution, it, does the state of my soul in the in the state of mortal sin change with that absolution, or is the priest no. culpable in not bringing it up? If you've hidden a sin, if, I, now I, I maybe be understanding what you're saying exactly. Are you hiding your 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 marital situation from the priest? No, I'm or living it. Saying, I'm Don't. living it openly, and he knows I'm living it openly. I'm not confessing it. Wow. Yeah. You know, if you understand that this is seriously morally wrong, then the priest thinking it is not morally wrong has no effect. Now, if, if, you know, to commit, you know, to live with someone with whom you are not married in a covenantal marriage, a sacramental marriage, is gravely seriously wrong. However, to commit a mortal sin, three things are needed. An awareness that it's, it must be grave matter, you must know it's grave matter, not think or not believe or not feel, but know it's grave matter, and you must have a full turning of the will. If you are forced into this relationship, say, by gunpoint or something like that, then that mitigates the moral culpability. But the priest saying, I don't worry about it, if you know that, no, the church says, God says, the scripture says this is wrong, then no, the priest's absolution doesn't change a thing. We priests are not infallible, and frequently we have issues of our own. So I would just suggest that uh, if you're living in a situation that isn't appropriate, uh, you know, I don't know if you want to discuss it now, but uh, I would go talk to that priest, say, I want to get my marriage validate it. it isn't to deny the marriage it isn't to say oh we were never married it's to, to validate it in the church and it's not a blessing it's a validation we don't bless marriages we witness them and and uh 
the, the bride, the man and the woman are the ministers of the sacrament. If one of you had been married before and that marriage was valid, then you can't be remarried. But there are a lot of situations in which a marriage is invalid. So I would go to my parish priest and I would ask about uh, the possibility that this marriage could be validated. And if he says, oh, it's valid, it's valid. No, you want you want to you want to go through the whole schmear. And I've heard that people who go through that annulment process, that it's really very healing for them. So I don't know if this pertains to your situation, but, um, you know, the priest uh, absolving you of sin that you don't want to stop committing doesn't absolve anything, as far as I understand. I wish I had better news for you, Kathleen, but I have to I have to tell you the truth, that uh, if you know that this is wrong, uh, you know, then you need to get it right. God bless, Kathleen. I'll be praying for you. Let's go to Marianne, who's calling in from uh, Naperville, Illinois, where I used to go swimming in the old quarry when I was but a boy. What can I do for you, Marianne? Oh, well, that sounded like a great idea. I, I walk by the quarry off, often, and it looks so refreshing. Anyway, I'm calling <laughs> Especially because... Especially in this um, weather, but go on. <laughs> Moving along. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm calling because uh, recent with the... Uh, Liturgy going into the Lenten uh, season, they changed mm-hmm. the way they sing the Lamb of God, and okay. they omit phrases from it. And I huh? mentioned this to the choir director a couple years ago when he did it, and he said, I said, my reasoning was, the Lamb of God is part of the actual liturgy. It's not yeah. a hymn that's added on. And you yeah. would have to sing it with the words of it. What's and he taken out of it? I haven't talked to the priest. Go ahead. What What has he taken out of it? He he. Well, when they sing the when they sing the song, they repeat some of the phrases, but with the first two, they they say they leave out "Have mercy on us," and then in the third one, they leave out the the the, the second line. Okay, takes Lamb of God takes who takes away the sins of the world. They go, Lamb of God, grant us peace. Well, I hope I, I hope the priest is up there saying the Lamb of God the way it should be said. Um, but I, you well, know, I would agree with you that you don't change the words. You don't change the words. You know that now. Now the the uh, provided you say Lamb of God, who uh, takes away the sins of the world twice, and then Lamb of God. You know, uh, if you have the three phrases there, I I I think that it is probably permissible. Uh, if you extend this this litany, the Lamb of God, if the breaking of the bread takes a longer time, that's what the Roman Missal says, the instruction, the general instruction. But you know, if you're extending it, perhaps you can vary it. But you got to say the three invocations that are in the book. That's that's just you know he shouldn't do that. You know he's not better than the liturgy. He shouldn't monkey with it. So I don't know. All you can do is bring it up to him, and then if he doesn't respond, bring it up to the priest, and then make your decision as to whether you want to continue uh, in that place. But, you know, it's um, yeah, these are strange times in which all of us can improve on everything. Do not move an ancestor's boundary stone, as I said earlier. I hope that helps a little, Marianne. But, you know, that uh, and uh, something I always tell people to tell their their pastor, their choir director, say, I have a right to the Roman Catholic Mass, not the Mass that you invented. 
that's that's you have the right to the Roman Catholic Mass. So there you go. Okay. Let's go to Esther. God bless you and thanks for listening, Marianne. Esther from from Carlsbad, California. What can I do yes. for you? Hi, Father Simon. Thank you for taking my call. I just want to let you know that because of you, I've been a Messianic Jew for almost 50 years, about 47 years. And because of you, four months ago when the Israel war started, I needed a home to be with other believers. Anyway, my radio station came in really clear, your your radio station. And then I heard you and... Jew, I heard you, and you came out with these Jewish expressions, like you just said, the whole schmear. A lot of people wouldn't know that. The whole schmear. Anyway, the whole schmear, the whole thing. I listened to your podcast, and you took off your sweater. You say, oh, I'm schwitzing. I mean, these are all Jewish expressions that I heard yes. growing yes. up as an Orthodox Jew. You know. Anyway, because my father used to say he's going to the schwitz in Coney Island to sweat. Uh, anyway, I just want to thank you for your wisdom, <laughs> and because of you, I'm still listening. I don't know how you got so Jewish, but... Well, um, my father worked... The last name Simon, we're not Jewish at all, but the last name Simon, my father always worked with Jews. He was the only he was the only Gentile in his company, and he was the only Gentile in his investment club, and he was the treasurer. So, despite being a total goy, I grew up aware of things Jewish, and... You know, Yiddish, it's a lovely way to express yourself. So, at any rate, Charlie, sei gesund. Not Charlie, this is, this is Esther. Sei gesund, sei gesund. <laughs> and, and now we're on to Drew. 